very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, this is the, um, uh, this is supposed to be the energetic part of the podcast, but, uh, my kids are asleep, my wife is asleep, and if my voice gets too much, the kids are going to wake up and then my wife is going to kill me. So, I've got a lot of reason not to want that to happen, so I'm going to try to bring the energy, but, you know, I'm going to be somewhat whispering. So, anyway, here we go, both long-time listeners and intermittent dabblers. It's the summer here, and it's hot. It's really hot. And my right eye, for some reason, is swollen from perhaps an allergy, probably to rice seed pollen, as to what the doctor, Japanese doctor, explained to me. Uh, given my bad Japanese not really being able to understand me. It could have been anything. So my face, it looks like someone stapled a ham to the side of my face in the one area that's exposed to the world after putting on my mask. So it's me in my uh, in my mask. Can't see the rest of my face. And then there's just this big red swollen protrusion <laughs> taking up 50% of the exposed area. Not uh, my best moment. Uh, I usually like to think I'm a debonair guy. Most people would disagree with that. So, anyway, I'm suffering from a bit of double vision because of that and about to commit an act of contrition by saying I'm sorry that we are about to play a game that you may or may not enjoy, but that I like to employ at the beginning of this show because I read somewhere that a bit of warm-up fun soothes 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 the podcast listener and dips them into a slow immersion of ideas like an old man testing the warm evening bath with a curious toe while the other rests on the cold hard linoleum so sit back put on those thinking caps because i'm about to say a philosophy quote and you're going to try to guess it in the five seconds generously allotted by yours truly Here we go. This one may be easy, but it has its depth and beauty in its simplicity. The quote is, The world is all that is the case. That's it. Okay, I'm going to give it to you one more time. The world is all that is the case. Now, come on at home, please count down with me. Five, Five four, four, three, three two, two, one. Okay. <clears throat> now, that quote, it is none under none than under. that aspiring aeronaut and elementary school classmate of Adolf Hitler, Ludwig Wittgenstein. I think this line was actually quoted in one of the Canadian musician Destroyers songs destroyer if you are into that sort of thing into that sort of music that's all for now i think the kids didn't wake up so i think i'm safe i'm safe on to that devious deontological kant emmanuel kant and the main of the podcast thank you for listening
I'd like today to look at that most ambitious of philosophers, Immanuel Kant. He is known for his dense, difficult writing style. And there's a lot to his work. So, I'd like to just focus on his metaphysics at the moment. A German born in 1724 in Konigsberg, which is now actually in modern times an enclave of Russia. But at the time of Kant's life, it was part of the Prussian state. He is perhaps known as the most important philosopher of all time, and certainly one of the most important thinkers during the Age of Enlightenment. In the words of Kantian scholar Michael Roof, Kant synthesized early modern rationalism and empiricism, set the terms for much of 19th and 20th century philosophy, and continues to exercise a significant influence today in metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, political philosophy, aesthetics, and other fields. So, one thing we're going to do today is to, uh, in examining Kant, is to look at the debate between rationalist philosophers and empiricist philosophers. Uh, those thinkers of the two schools of thought, rationalism and empiricism, that dominated modern philosophy. And we're going to weave between these schools, and by weaving between them, we're going to get a sense of the urgency of Kant's ideas and its contribution to the progression of philosophical thought. Also, Kant kind of fits in between these rationalist and empiricist schools. Uh, he's read by both traditions. He's just one of those unique philosophers who crosses aisles. Now, um, these two schools, personally, I always intuitively jump on the empiricist bandwagon when I hear an argument, uh, but it seems the, the, you know, empiricism seems the most sensible to me as someone who respects science, but those rationalists have arguments that just pull you towards them. So I, I can't, uh, I can't make any easy judgments. Okay. Anyway, please listen. Thank you. Since Kant's work synthesized empiricism and rationalism in order to understand Kant, we must first look briefly at the debate between empiricists and rationalists that early modern philosophy centered around. The empiricists, quite simply, thought all knowledge was based on our senses. It was a careful, reductive approach, not overly flashy, but endlessly sensible. It reduced all complex ideas to simple perceptions. So to judge whether a theory was correct was to break down that theory into its constituent parts and judge those accordingly. Very scientific and indeed, it drew its inspiration from the rise of experimental science at the time. For the empiricists, what is not 
ultimately derived from simple perceptions, does not deserve to be labeled knowledge. This produces a fairly sparse ontology, as it is a very basic materialist framework. It seems, at least on the surface, to have the stable grounding of a philosophy derived from science. It is philosophy with no bells or whistles. Now, on to a more fancier philosophy. Some philosophers found the empiricist framework to be very uh, unsatisfactory. They believe that since the human senses were infallible, so too was any knowledge based on the senses solely. These philosophers were called rationalists. Well, I guess a lot of different schools have problems with this empiricist idea. One of these early schools were called rationalists, and they tended to include philosophers from continental Europe, like Leibniz, Spinoza, and I think therefore I am, Descartes. In place of an emphasis on the human senses, the rationalists suggested that reality itself has an inherently logical structure, and that a class of truths exists that the intellect can grasp directly. So, yeah, the, there's some sort of truths that we can get from the inherently logical structure of reality. Hmm. Now, let's look at the work of David Hume. David Hume, um, very important philosopher, very respected, especially in the British empiricist tradition. He was a Scottish philosopher who lived between 1711 to 1776. That's an important date. And was part of the British empiricists. According to Hume, rationalist efforts to bypass the senses are doomed to fail. He was an empiricist. He was against the rationalists because reason itself cannot impart knowledge on its own. Reason, it's just not that useful on its own. Reason can only be used to draw connections, connections between sensory input. It's just a tool that helps us arrange what we see and touch, taste, hear, those things. For example, inference can be used to group singular red objects to form the general concept of red. We see an apple. We see a fire engine. We use reason to bring these things together. What's similar about the color, the shade of these things? Reason is more or less um, uh, an organizational program, I guess you could say, dedicated to and dependent on the census. Could we say it's a slave to the census? Maybe. So, reason uh, does not provide knowledge in isolation of the census. We get nothing, nothing, nada. 
Rationality only relates ideas to one another. Hume, more than any other empiricist of his time, took empiricism to the extreme by making explicit a skepticism about all, all things not sense-based. He argued that, uh, for example, causality, you know, linking two actions together, uh, could not be derived from experience and therefore was not something that we could know. You know, causality when uh, uh, one pool ball hits the other, that first ball hitting the second pool ball was the cause of uh, that uh, second pool ball moving. Nah, to him, that could not be derived from experience. Uh, it's not something that we could know. Uh, causality is an illusion, an illusion we depend on every day. Though he would argue a very helpful one, of course. We, we do need causality to figure out the world, to know the sun will rise again tomorrow. Causality is the idea that one action causes the other, and it is the idea on which our cause and effect understanding of science is based. But that itself is an illusion. All effects have causes. There is no uncaused cause, according to science. For Hume, although we may notice that some events regularly follow others, we cannot conclude that one caused the other. Sorry. Ah. Oh. Kant found Hume's account of causality especially worrying because it uh, potentially swept away one of the basic foundations of science, that cause and effect. That's what science is based on. Uh, Kant has said that uh, Hume's writings awoke Kant from his dogmatic slumbers. And uh, that's, that's quite the compliment. Really. Really. The history of philosophical compliments. The history of philosophical compliments. So, we're uh, going to stop there. Uh, we're going to stop at the point where uh, Hume has put a little bit of fear into Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant, uh, he doesn't know what to do. He's lost his faith in science. He doesn't know where logic fits into philosophy. He's been woken up from his dogmatic slumbers. Now he's hungry, he's angry, he's awake. What does he do? That's what we're going to explore in the next episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Really uh, appreciate it. Uh, see you next time. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.